When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where we take what's happening in the world today and try to give some answers from Holy Scripture and from church tradition and a lot of other stuff too. Thanks for joining. The word priest was maintained in the English church, the Anglican church that we are descended from, as well as um, a number of other churches, Methodists, Baptists, could even argue Quakers and others uh, that came out of the Church of England that was born in the English Reformation about 500 years ago. And the term priest was kept uh, mainly just because that's what people were used to saying. Um, the theological rationale for maintaining that title for clergy, the second order of clergy, um, was hotly debated then and still is. Most Protestant Christian churches do not call their clergy priests. In fact, I think we are the only, only ones who do that in the Episcopal Church um, in the United States. The term priest um, is used in the Old and New Testament for a group of people that are set aside to be holy. That is exactly what the word means. Uh, means set apart or holy. In Greek, uh, the word priest is hierios or hero, hero. Um, you may know that in my son's name, Hieronymus, um, sacred name or priest name, like anonymous, no name. Priests, uh, the language of priesthood is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus, to describe the church as a kingdom of priests, those who offer the daily sacrifice of prayer and thanksgiving on behalf of our great high priest, Jesus. When it comes to other terms, though, for human ministers, minister, another word we use for clergy in America, um, really just means servant. Um, it's used in the UK and British English uh, with um, to to denote someone who is a public servant, the minister of finance, the prime minister. Um, but in the New Testament, a couple different terms are used. One is elder, which in Greek is presbyteros. presbyteros. Um, you may know this term from when you get to be my age and you have to go for an eye exam and find out that you can't see stuff that's close up. And that is the medical condition of presbyopia, old man eyes. Um, that presbyteros means, or presbyter means old man. We've sort of taken the gender away from it by just saying elder um, can mean a man or a woman. And that is the term used by most Protestants to describe their clergy, uh, elder. The word pastor is a word for shepherd and certainly a word we use a lot in the Episcopal Church for an activity or a responsibility, not always as a title. 
all these terms swirl around and have their roots in the Bible, in the Old Testament. In the time of the judges, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, literally the 12 tribes of Israel being the father of the 12, more or less. Um, Israel, Jacob, being the same person. God gives him a new name. And his 12 tribes all have a different function. They live in different places in the land that they have just conquered in the book of Joshua. And they've been given different portions of land, but the Levites, the tribe of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, are designated to be a priestly clan or tribe or family. And they are not given any land. They are given a number of cities, really villages, probably think of them more as villages, all around the land of Canaan. Six of them are designated to be cities of refuge, that if someone kills someone accidentally, that they can flee to that city of refuge and can uh, find safety there. The Levitical priests of the Old Testament that we meet on many pages and many stories are really fascinating characters, and they all are very different. And the one we meet here in this story in Judges uh, has a very specific role. He is to be the priest for this shrine that has three objects in it, an ephod. We've encountered the ephod of Gideon before in our recent readings, the morning prayer. Um, I think this is a different ephod. An ephod is some kind of priestly garment, whether it's like a breastplate or a tunic or even some form of loincloth. Um, Hard to know depending on context, but it's like a little outfit Um, And I believe this one is made of metal, so it's been forged and put together. And then this other thing called a, um, long page here, this other object that is possessed by the Danites, Micah's house, um, an idol of cast metal and a teraphim. Nobody really knows what a teraphim is. It's a plural word. Um, Various speculations have been made over the years. Um, It is in the class of idols, though, or objects of false worship. The commandments prohibit making an image um, of any kind, of any beast or any other object, and worshiping it. And so... These are clearly against the Ten Commandments that are given by God to Moses. What they're doing seems to be so diametrically opposed to what God has set out for God's people. But the way the story is told, it's told like this is sort of normal, everyday activity. Now, this story highlights, as Paula mentioned yesterday, the move of the Danites from their original settlement to Laish, Laish, uh, where they eventually settle in the north of Canaan and the north part of, um, of the land. Eventually, they are so settled in the north part of the land that the common expression for when something goes viral um, or something is big, a big deal or something affects everyone, they say, 
And all the people heard it from Dan to Beersheba. Beersheba being the southernmost city, Dan being the topmost area or city of the land of Canaan. So to refer to Dan to Beersheba eventually becomes the standard way of talking about the whole land of Israel. But um, they make their move, and then they set up the idols and the uh, teraphim and this metal ephod, which is different, I think, than um, one than the one that Gideon makes. But the fact that they're all kind of making them tells us a few things about what life was like for these people. That um, it is really hard to worship an invisible God. That uh, it is really hard to trust a God you can't see. It was really hard to do that. And um, not only is that hard to do or difficult to imagine, but it's also um, at odds with everything they see around them. Every other group of people that they've ever known, the Egyptians and then all the Canaanites and all the Amorites and all the Philistines, all have very visible deities, um, gods and goddesses that are worshipped, that are, offerings are made to, and they depend on for the crops to grow, for the babies to be born, for a number of things. And, and the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has also made these promises to God's people, but they can't see anything the way they see these other deities. And the temple, the tabernacle at this time, is in Shiloh. It is far away. And they are to make pilgrimages to it every so often. But this very remote tribe probably is making the pilgrimages a lot less than the other groups. And so their faith wavers. Distance, isolation, the apparent success of the people that live around them. These temptations are really the cause of Micah's obsession with these idols. And it says that these idols stay there in the tribe of Dan. And the sons of this Levite, this priest, um, become the, the priests for this tribe all the way up into the Babylonian captivity. Um, and that they maintain this idol um, until the tabernacle the, the, and the Ark of the Covenant is moved to Jerusalem. Um, and so this is a failure. Like most of the stories in the Judges, these are cautionary tales. They are tales of what happens to people, real people, when they drift, when they stray, when they um, turn in on themselves to meet their own needs. All we like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That the turning astray, the going astray, the wandering away is the ultimate um, definition of sin in the Old Testament. The leaving the community, leaving the covenant, leaving this relationship with God for things that are quicker, things that are more immediate, things that give us better answers. Uh, and so, and yet we also see that these two, almost two very different religions are existing at the same period of time, almost running on parallel railroad tracks 
along the way. This household idol cult, whatever you call it, that this priest is running for Micah's house and all the Danites, and this um, other worship of God in Shiloh at the tabernacle is also going. Um, So these two things are happening, and God is still being faithful. God is still showing up. God is still loving these people in spite of all that they are going through and all that they are straying away from. They are still God's people, very much so. Um, They have not stopped being God's people at any moment of this time. Um, And it's true for us, too. When we stray, when we um, find ourselves unable to trust God anymore, we find ourselves discouraged and despairing, giving up hope, um, and turning to those very quick and immediate and visible things that we see other people having as they have their success. Um, God still loves us. We are still God's people. We still belong to God. And God knows that about us, knows that we are like sheep that go astray. And that is why Jesus has been sent. Jesus was sent by God to earth to not only show us an example of a holy life, which sometimes seems a little unattainable, and yet he was human, just like you're human and I'm human. Um, Anyone that says, well, Jesus was Jesus, um, so he can't do, I can't do what he did, or you don't expect me to be like Jesus. Um, Jesus was really human, and when we we say that he was somehow some kind of superhuman, um, unlike us, we are denying one of the core tenets of our faith, that Jesus was human. Jesus is human. Um, So that excuse that we might give of, oh, that that was just Jesus, we're not Jesus, um, is really an excuse that takes away something from who he really is. Um, It is a denial of who he is in a very deep way. And as our colleague last Sunday said, we are to follow his example. Um, Example of a holy life, which means always trusting God, always talking to God, arguing with God, being real with God, and being in community with people that are into that same thing. Um, That's what Jesus showed us an example. And his crucifixion, his sacrifice as well, to be united to Jesus in his sacrifice is also part of that collect. Those two things, Jesus' example and his sacrifice, are the things that keep us trusting God. Because when we try to imitate his example, we will always fall a little short, I'm sure, many different ways. Um, and that is, that is the time to be reminded of the fact that he died for us, that his sacrifice on the cross was for us, for you, for me. And it was, it was worth, it was, it, was, it was effectual. It actually worked. His sacrifice for our sins worked. And so that all that shame that clings to us and wants to cling to us and the other people put on us and all those other things is washed away in the blood of Jesus. This is what his sacrifice means for us, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that uh, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This is the affirmation of faith that we say when we believe in the sacrifice of Jesus. It means that nothing can ever bring us down. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, not fire, tribulation, sword, temptation, discouragement, failure, none of those things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
because it was his sacrifice, not ours, his sacrifice that reconciled us to God. And so in these feeble attempts for salvation, these feeble attempts for inclusion, these feeble attempts to trust God that we can see these people and the judges doing, they're doing the best they can. They're just kind of clawing in the dark, looking for hope. They are, as Paul said, when he encountered the idols and temples and shrines in Athens, he said, we are all grasping for God. We are groping really for God in the dark, trying to find God in all these different places and all these different ways. I don't know about you, but I've tried to find God in so many different places, so many places that um, where God was, God was in those places. Um, and yet they were the places that often um, I stumbled upon while I was trying to get away from God. Um, ultimately, God appears to us because we can never really leave God's love. We can never leave God's presence. We can never be completely out of God's relationship, a relationship with God, just as these people of God discovered. And it didn't mean their lives were easy or that everything worked out all the time. Um, the next chapter contains a really gruesome and grisly story um, involving um, uh, people that are very similar to the people in the chapter 18, um, all of them trying to figure out how to live in this world amidst the hardships of life. And so um, God's judgment, it says, comes to them when they get led away into captivity. That's when this, that's when this ends. But they never stop being God's people. God loves them, and God loves you, and I hope you know that today. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, what you're not doing, whatever you're doing, God loves you. God knows you, and God will be with you, even all the way to the end. Amen. The Song of the Redeemed, a 94. O ruler of the universe, Lord God, great deeds are they that you have done surpassing human understanding. Your ways are ways of righteousness and truth, O King of all the ages. Who can fail to do you homage, Lord, and sing the praises of your name? For you only are the Holy One. All nations will draw near and fall down before you. Because your just and holy works have been revealed. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. The Creed on 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we pray a collect for the repose of the soul of our brother, Eric Panter. I don't know if you remember Eric um, singing for us um, 
at St. Joan of Arc in 19 or 2019. I may he may have sung in 2020 as well, but I'm, my memories of him are uh, coming with Krista, who played our piano for us and singing heartily. He was a great singer, and um, we are saddened by his death. Um, that happened um, yesterday. I want to pray a collect for him and pray a prayer for him and all those that love him and his family. Into your hands, O merciful Savior, we commend your servant Eric. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a sheep of your own fold, a lamb of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming. Receive him into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace, and into the glorious company of the saints in light. Amen. May his soul and the souls of all the departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. Today the church remembers Samuel Johnson, Timothy Cutler, and Thomas Bradbury Chandler, all priests. Uh, Samuel Johnson was born in Connecticut in 1696, so in British Connecticut. Um, is ordained a Congregationalist minister in 1719, but ongoing in study and his experience of ministry led him to an, appre an appreciation of the Episcopal Orders and Apostolic Succession, which is the orders of ordination or ordained ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon, which we have in the Episcopal Church, and apostolic succession, which is the um, tracing of the apostles' ordinations of other bishops who ordained other bishops, who ordained other bishops, who ordained other bishops, on and on and on, down to the bishops that lead our church today. And as well, he was also drawn to the ordered liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. Shortly after his ordination, he and his he and sympathetic others met and discussed the Anglican alternative, including Harvard graduate Timothy Cutler, then rector of Yale College. In September of 1722, Johnson Cutler and their friend Daniel Brown, the Yale apostates, this created quite a stir on the Congregationalist campus of Yale. Congregationalists were previously Anglicans in England who didn't like the bishops, mainly, and other things like having to use the prayer book. And so many of them came to the United States, well, came to the American colonies in New England to get away from all that in England. Um, even some of the uh, men who sat on the jury that condemned Charles I to death, King Charles I, a king who refused to disband the episcopacy or he refused to give in to the demands of the Presbyterians to get rid of all the bishops. And for that uh, refusal, he was martyred and murdered by a jury given the death penalty and some of those jurors escaped to Connecticut. So you can see the kind of place that Connecticut was in those days, very anti-Anglican, very anti-bishop 
very anti-king, even though it was a British colony. Um, and these young men, these Yale apostates, confronted the trustees of Yale College and announced their intention to seek ordination in the Church of England. There was no bishop here in England or in America at the time. And so in March 1723, they had sailed. They were ordained to the Anglican priesthood by the Bishop of Norwich in England. And that was after sailing back to England. They came back to New England as missionaries for the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, or the SPG as it's called. And Johnson became the rector of the first Anglican congregation in Connecticut at Stratford, where he served until he became the first president of King's College, now Columbia University in New York. Like a lot of things in the Revolutionary War, King's College was renamed as Columbia for the land of Columbia that America has often been called. A young Alexander Hamilton, a student at Columbia or King's College at the time, drilled uh, with muskets out in front of the college by St. Paul's Chapel in New York uh, there in those a few years later. So it was a very pivotal place for Anglicans and for the American Revolution as well. Cutler, after doctoral studies at Oxford and Cambridge, served as rector of Christ Church in Boston, where he tirelessly, tirelessly advocated for the appointment of an Anglican bishop in the colonies until his death in 1765. Johnson's pupil, Thomas Bradbury Chandler, was also an ardent advocate for bishops in the colonies and continued the work. Chandler, the father-in-law of Bishop John Henry Hobart, served for 43 years as rectors of Saint, a rector of St. John's Elizabethtown, now called Elizabeth, New Jersey, and was himself appointed the first Anglican bishop in the Americas in Nova Scotia, but was unable to accept the appointment due to illness. Um, Johnson, Cutler, and Chandler were notable exponents of Anglican theology and polity in the formative years before the American Revolution. America, when the diverse marketplace of religion in the colonies was in its infancy, but growing robustly in the climate sympathetic to religious freedom. Sorry, I messed that sentence up. These guys were notable exponents, exponents of um, in pre-revolutionary America, when at the time a very diverse marketplace of religious ideas were still being born. That's a way to summarize this very awkwardly worded sentence. Um, but it grew robustly in a climate of sympathy for religious freedom. The experience, examples, and advocacy of Johnson, Cutler, and Chandler and others like them contributed substantially to the continuation of Anglicanism in post-Revolutionary War America, adapting Anglican thought and practice to a new emerging United States. You know, we went from being a state religion in England where, for the most part, church attendance was compulsory. You paid a fine or tax if you did not attend church on Sundays in England, as it was considered uh, your civic duty to attend the Church of England. Now, there were some exceptions to that and other, um, other churches that you may be able to go to at some times and some places, but by and large, for most Christians, if you were a Protestant and you were Anglican, you pretty much had to be part of this Church of England. Um, the other churches that were allowed were not um, tolerated very well 
Roman Catholics were allowed to be Roman Catholic and attend Roman Catholic services at that time, but um, they were still very much discriminated against. But in America, um, it was kind of a free-for-all, and they really felt like if they could get bishops to move across the ocean, um, Anglicanism could compete with the other um, churches that were vying for um, vying for growth in this new world. Um, this never happened. As the example of Chandler shows, um, he was too sick by the time they got it all together to be ordained as a bishop. Um, and he was the uh, father of John Henry Hobart, I think it says. Um, he was a father-in-law of Bishop John Henry Hobart, um, who eventually became a really influential bishop in the, in the United States. That was um, the person who really set Elizabeth Ann Seton on her path of life, of discipleship. Elizabeth Ann Seton uh, eventually had five kids, got married, got married, then had five kids, something like that, and then moved to Italy where her husband died and became a nun. She came back to America and founded hospitals and convents all over the East Coast. And eventually, in the late 1800s, some very brave nuns traveled to Texas and to Austin, Texas, where they established a hospital known as Seton Hospital, named after her. And um, now it's called Ascension Seton, and it'll probably they'll drop the Seton altogether any, any day now. Who knows? I'm not sure if they'll do that or not. But you can see that, that these movements had a big impact even on us today here far away. But it was this failure to invest. The real problem of the not sending bishops was the money. Um, very few people wanted to be a bishop with no salary and to not enjoy the land and titles and influence that they had in England. The bishops often... Many of them would sit in the House of Lords as, um, as little lords and had a lot of sway over the politics of the nation, and that just wasn't going to happen here in America. Bishops also owned a lot of property just by being a bishop in England and um, often would have their own courts established and things like that. So it would have been a real um, hardship for many of them to accept the, a bishop job here in America. It was hard. It was difficult. It wasn't easy. It was pioneering work, and they didn't really want to do it. So, unfortunately, um, Anglicanism, the Church of England, which eventually became the Episcopal Church in America, really struggled um, without that kind of leadership here. And so, uh, shortly after the American Revolution, we got bishops eventually, but um, but I, I think if we do alternate history, which doesn't really work that well, that had they been here earlier, um, we could have um, certainly held our nation together a little better and maybe even prevented some of the calamities that befell our country um, early on. God of your pilgrim people, you called Samuel Johnson, Timothy Cutler, and Thomas Chandler to leave their spiritual home and embrace the Anglican way. We give you thanks for their devoted service in building up your church and shepherding your flock in colonial times. And we pray that like them, we may follow where your spirit leads and be ever eager to feed the hearts and minds of those entrusted to our care. In the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, 
now and forever. Amen. And as many of us um, did not start out as Episcopalians, uh, these examples of these guys who, as grown-ups, decided what church they're going to be part of. Um, do, doing church as a grown-up is a really good thing. Um, we can leave some of our childhood baggage behind of being coerced to go to church or feeling out of place or whatever that was and, and do it voluntarily on our own. Sometimes that means we change churches. I really feel like people should find a church where they can feel at home there. I know I felt at home when I started attending an Episcopal church um, in Colleen, Texas, St. Christopher's. Um, and I know I felt at home there for the first time in a really long time. And I hope that um, many people will discover the Anglican tradition in the same way. Um, we ought not to be um, snooty or discriminatory to new people that join us, even though they may use different terminology than Episcopalians are used to using or not understand everything that we do. Um, but as soon as they join us, they are part of the we. They are we. They are us. And um, our faith in Jesus and our shared tradition and heritage is what unites us, not really any other factor, just that, that continuing practice. So to me, um, I meet a lot of people in my life and work out and about that claim to be Episcopalians but never attend any churches. And I feel like the visitor that came on Sunday, even though they probably didn't, may have not even known what an Episcopal church was, are more Episcopalian than um, than those ones who don't go to church. Um, so you who are praying morning prayer every day are deeper, have a deeper knowledge of the faith than maybe somebody that's been doing it their whole life but has never cracked open the prayer book um, to pray morning prayer on their own or with a group. So we celebrate those who have found our church from many different places, especially these three that charted that territory for us many years ago. Pray a colic for mission. On 101. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.